Hebrews 2, let's begin reading in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Now the Christmas statement in that verse is, he too shared in their humanity. The reason for that is the children share in flesh and blood. The children meaning a broad scope in context of an understanding of humanity in general. So since we share in flesh and blood, God came in flesh and blood. To be like us so that he could be one who stands as a substitute in our place on the cross. So he came, as we looked at last night, to identify with us. Verse 17 strengthens it. It says, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way. So he comes as the Son of Man to identify with humanity so that he could be like us in every way apart from our sinfulness. So he comes to identify. That's what what Christmas is. God showed up in my form, in flesh. Verse 15. He shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It is not the angels he helps, but the descendants of Abraham, that is believers. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service To God, so that He might make atonement, remove the wrath that is deserved for the sins of the people. Because He Himself suffered when He was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. This morning, I just want to take us a little bit further in this discussion. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to identify with us. Secondly, Jesus came to die for us. So he identifies with us, becomes like us, so that as a substitute in my place, he could take my place on the cross, bearing the wrath of God to pay the price for my sin. That's why God came in flesh. So God is enfleshed amongst us in what we call the incarnation. He lives a perfect life and then gives himself on the cross to pay the price for our sin, to bear for each of us the wrath. Of God, And so it's why in this text, verse 17 says, for this reason, he had to, that is, it was necessary that he become like us, identify fully with us, face the temptations that we face, live the righteous life that we all fail to live, so that in our place, he could stand. And this text says he stands as a perfect high priest. Okay, so when you go back into the Old Testament and start to say, okay, what is this priest thing? And if you grew up in the Catholic Church, you understand what the priesthood is about. The priest is someone who mediates between God and man. Okay, and the assumption is something like this. Because of our fallenness, we are unable to approach a holy God because of our sin. So what do we need? We need a priest that stands between us and God like an advocate, or we would think in legal terms, a lawyer who pleads our case and then gives to us the verdict. That's what a priest does. 
It's what a lawyer does. Stands between the judge who has the right to bring upon you the full weight of the law in terms of consequence. And he, he negotiates. He plea bargains. Okay? In the Old Testament, the priest was a man who stood ultimately as the ultimate high priest. But he stood and he offered sacrifices to grant covering for our sin. That's what a priest did. So that the individual could go away free from his sin because the priest had offered the life of an animal sacrifice to bear away that individual's sin. That individual then walks away free because his sin has been conveyed onto a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 captures this picture of the work of Jesus who Hebrews 2 says came and was made like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. I want you to turn to Hebrews 10 real quick and capture this truth of why Jesus came. Hebrews chapter 10. I just want you to read through this with me. And in the midst of it, you're going to see Christmas jump out. There's going to be a phrase that tells us at the center of the high priestly work of Jesus, interceding between us and God, holiness and sinfulness, there is a work that he does as a result of Christmas. Hebrews 10 verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Now, if you say to me, okay, what does he mean when he says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming? What is, what is it that is the law? The law is two things in the Old Testament. It is the Ten Commandments that you and I are unable to keep. You may try, but you understand as you try to keep them, I can't do this perfectly. Okay? The other side of the law was the aspect that we knew as the ceremonial. So this is the moral. Okay? The Ten Commandments, the standard of righteousness that I am unable to keep. And then on the other side is the ceremonial law, which was the high priestly system. Wherein a priest would acknowledge the sin of individuals who would confess it. He would convey those sins upon a sacrifice by laying his hands on the head of that animal, confessing their sin, and then the animal was put to death so that the individual would not have to die. And forgiveness took place in that kind of a way, but it was a shadow. It wasn't an adequate sacrifice, as you'll see in this text. Okay, so the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. So all of the Old Testament is anticipating something coming. That would be what they are, but it would be what those sacrifices were in the truest and fullest sense. It would be what the high priest was, and it would be what the sacrifice, but wrapped up in one. Okay, and this is the mystery. For this reason, it can never, that is the shadow, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to God. It, it could, that Old Testament system of a priest confessing the sins on an animal and it dying in their place could never make perfect. It couldn't bring righteousness. It could only cover sin. But it couldn't make fit for heaven. Those that drew near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? Meaning, if the sacrifice for an individual was adequate and made them perfect, then why would it need to be repeated? Okay, that's the question. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty about their sins. But they did. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins on the Day of Atonement on a yearly basis. Verse 4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away human sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, 
He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, meaning it did not fully satisfy. Even though it was required, it did not fully satisfy. And then notice what this text says. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. You know what that's quoting from? That's quoting from the book of Isaiah. 720 some years prior to the coming of Christ. This is the prophecy about the Christmas story. A body you have prepared for me. Who's speaking? It's Christ. Anticipating his coming in flesh. A body you prepare for me. That's Christmas in the middle of Hebrews chapter 10. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased, meaning they never fully satisfied the wrath of God. For this reason, they did not come from someone who is the same in kind. Okay, they were animal sacrifices. They were not a human who lived a righteous life. Verse 7. Then I said, and this is Jesus, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. Psalm 40 now. I have come to do your will, O God. Okay, which when you think about the life of Christ, should ring all kinds of bells in relationship to his struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's the struggle? Avoid the pain of the cross, the pain of the cross in his physical body. But what does Jesus do? He does not avoid the pain of the cross. He instead embraces it. Okay, why? This is what Jesus says. For this reason I came into the world. To do what? To in flesh, Christmas, bear the sins of many. Do you see how Hebrews is framing this? A body you prepare for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings did not satisfy you. Then I said, here I am. Folks, on this day, and this is just in our way of remembering it, on this day, God stepped out of heaven, incarnated, stepped down into human form, and became flesh, a baby in a manger but for a purpose. Not to give us a sentimental holiday that would make us feel soft and squishy on a day of the year. Not for that reason. If that's all you have on Christmas, you do not have the meaning of Christmas. Jesus said, you prepared a body for me. Why? Because with the sacrifice of animals, you were never satisfied. And they were unable to make the one who offered them perfect. They were inadequate. They were incomplete. Did they point forward to the death of a greater lamb? Oh, yes. And this is Christmas. Okay? Behold the Lamb of God. And what does He do? The Gospel of John tells us. He bears away the sin of the world. Not just a baby in a manger, but a man who would grow up and live a perfect life. And in that body, and after having lived that perfect life, would give Himself. That's what Jesus says to Pilate. Pilate says, I can take your life from you. Do you know what Jesus says? Oh, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Folks, the reason for the manger was so that one day the life of Christ could be laid on a cross, and on that cross, He would bear my sin and make righteousness possible for me. By bearing my sin away, His offering has the capacity to make us perfect. So Jesus says, Father, I've come to do Your will. First he said, verse 8, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, even though they were required. Verse 9, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the Old Testament priestly system. 
Okay, we're a priest mediated between man and God. Okay, Jesus sets that aside. And the question is this, how? Okay, and here's the answer. The priest and the sacrifice become one. Okay, so who is Jesus? He's the great high priest. That's what the Bible tells us. But what is he? He is in human form. And what does he do in human form as the great high priest? He lays down his life for us. And folks, in the Old Testament, you will never find the priest climbing onto the altar to give himself. Why? Because it would have been worthless. Because that priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sin. Jesus Christ brings together the Old Testament. The shadows become reality. What did the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament mean? If you've ever read it, you get to a point where you're like, wow, enough, enough. But it is not enough, right? Until the priest and the sacrifice merge and the Lamb of God becomes the great high priest who offers himself to pay the price for our sin. He had to be made like us. A body he prepared for me, Jesus said. So then in that body, he could bear the price of our sin standing in our place. He sets aside the first, verse 9 says, to establish the second. Okay, which is to say what? The Old Testament system was always pointing forward to something greater. The sacrifices and the high priest, what happened to them? They died and they would go away. The priest would live and the priest would die. And he would go away. But his work was always incomplete. How do you know? Because when he was done, what did he have to do? When that priest died, you had to point the next high priest. And when that priest died, you had to point the next high priest. Why? Because the work that they did was never adequate. Does that make sense? It was never a, it didn't make anybody perfect. It wasn't an adequate sacrifice that he offered. So his work continued and the priest would die and it would continue. And the lamb that was offered one year would be offered again the next year. And then another lamb would be offered the next year. Another lamb would be offered the next year. Why? Because it was looking for the lamb and the priest that would live forever and the sacrifice that would satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Now listen to what this says. Verse 10. By that will, that is the will of God, that Jesus says, I have come in verse 9 to do your will. By that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all people, once for all time. Okay, and this is the glory of Christmas. A body you prepare for me. And in that body, he does his high priestly work. Verse 11 then. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice. We offered this last year. We have to do it again. Okay, he stands year after year. And again and again, he offers the sacrifices. But notice what he says. They are sacrifices which, end of verse 11, can never take away sin. And then he goes back to Jesus. What did he say? But, in contrast, when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, which was himself, what does he do? You know what the text says? He sat down. He said, okay, what does that mean? Well, if the sacrifice was himself, and now he's sitting down, what had to happen? He had to offer himself, die, come back to life in the resurrection. And now what does he do? He takes his seat in the area of the temple, in the presence of God. Why? Because the work is done. 
There is no need for any more sacrifice. Why? Because this is the one who came in human form, lived the life I couldn't live, died the death I should have died. And now my sins are washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. He offered one sacrifice for sins. He did not repeat it. And when he was done, he sat down. Because there is no more need after the work of Christ for sacrifice. Sin and death in, by implication are conquered and we are free. Jesus came to identify with us. Jesus came to die for us. The death we should have died after living the life we could not live. A perfect life. How does that affect us today? Right, that's the question you come to. How does Hebrews 2 say that that affects individuals? It does it in these three ways. It frees us, verse 15 says, okay, that he might free those, back in Hebrews 2 now, that he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Okay, what does Jesus do? He frees us from the guilt of our sin. Okay, that, that nagging sense that you have that all is not well between me and God, that all is not well between me and the law of God, that I at some level am a lawbreaker. What is guilt? Guilt is something we all experience, but what is it? Here's what it is. It's the mental price that we all pay for our sin. It's that nagging sense in the back of their mind that before a holy God, I can't stand all is not well. The law that I try to keep, I'm unable to keep. I need righteousness. I need forgiveness from God. So when Jesus came, he came to remove the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32 says it this way. I said, God, I will acknowledge my sin. I'll confess it. And what does David then say? He says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave, you took away the mental price that we all pay. And folks, let me just say this this morning. Romans chapter 2 says that every individual created by God has within them a God-given mechanism called conscience. Okay, and here's what it does. When you do something good for someone, okay, you, do a, you, you see someone in line and they're five bucks short on their purchase and you, in your heart, you feel in your conscience the good thing to do, the moral thing to do, if you're able, would be to help that person. Okay, deny that thought and walk away and tell me in your heart, you're not thinking, you know what, I was able to help that person and I failed to. Tell me that in your heart, whether you believe in God or not, tell me that in your heart you feel good about denying them that opportunity, that help. I'm going to tell you something, you don't. You know why? Because Romans 2 says you were created in the image of God. You have a sense of right and wrong. Go back to the scenario. You're standing in line, the person in front of you lacks the four or five bucks to finish purchasing their gift. You see the guilt, you see the remorse, you see the sadness on their face, their inability. You pull the five bucks out of your wallet, you lay it on the counter and say, Merry Christmas. And you walk away. What do you feel? You do not feel morally neutral. You know what you feel? That was the right thing to do. Where's that coming from? Okay, the book of Romans says it's coming from your conscience created in the image of God, a sense of right and wrong. And when we do right, our conscience says, good job, good job, good job. But we all know the experience that most of the time our conscience is saying, you shouldn't have done that. You should, shouldn't talk to your wife that way. Don't treat your kids like that. How could you do that to a coworker? Right? You have this, how could I think that? Your conscience is saying, you know what? You're a sinner. 
You need hope through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And what does Jesus say? I have come, Father, to do your will. He stands in our place and bears away the guilt of our sin. He also does this. He frees us from the enslaving power of sin. 15, the first part of the verse says that he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery. The word for freedom at the beginning of verse 15 literally means this. It means to take a slave who is in bondage owned by someone to pay a freedom price to deliver them. Okay, that's what Jesus does. He sees us in the bondage of guilt and he frees us from that bondage by what? By paying the debt that we owe. The debt is the thing that nags us. I owe this person. I don't know if you've ever been in that circumstance where you owe someone and you can't pay it. And it, it, it hangs there as something that needs to be satisfied. And the day you finally pay it off and you burn the mortgage or, or the loan document, you burn it. Why? Because now I am free from that. That's what Jesus does to the bill of debt for sin. He bears it in his body on the tree. And we are free from the consequence of sin. And this is a glorious truth. Most of us know what it is to wrestle with our inadequacy in terms of living perfectly. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? Okay, how many of you have ever made the same one twice? So, okay, a lot of dishonest people in this room. Okay? Most of us know what it is. Make the New Year's resolution and then what? Fall down. Eat too much. Right? We, we know that. It's a, uh, this year's going to be different. But do New Year's resolutions change you? That's the question. They're saying, you know what, I'm going to stop doing this. Does that statement give you the ability to stop doing whatever you're doing? Does it give you the ability to stop lusting? Does it give you the ability to stop overeating? Does it give you the ability to overcome anger by saying, you know what, I don't like being angry because after I'm angry, I feel guilty. My conscience is saying, you are wrong, you're wrong. Or I ate too much and you're, no, you shouldn't eat too much. I shouldn't look at that. Does, does that free you from it? No, you know what it does? It holds you in bondage. You want, to, you, you want to stop. You say, I, just, I don't want to do that again. What's this text say? It says that Jesus came that he might free those. He comes to give us by his death liberty from sin by transforming our lives. Promises don't empower. Here's what promises do. Promises are good intentions that lead to failure, that lead to remorse, and a reminder of our inability. The promise to change does not change you why you are held captive until you experience the redeeming liberating grace of god that defeats sin by verse 14 defeating the one who holds the power of sin the devil who is accusing you and making you feel guilty along with your conscience but he has no ability to change you all he can do is condemn you jesus christ stands in your place on the cross and says give me by faith the consequence of your sin i will bear it away and by the power of the Spirit, I will change you. You see, that's the gospel. That God invades human hearts by the power of the Spirit and sets us free to live the life that we always wanted to live, but couldn't. That's why Jesus came. Folks, that's, I'm going to tell you something. The news about a baby in a manger, sentimentally, I love it. Okay, I love the emotion of that. I'm, I'm emotive that way. But it doesn't change me. Do you see? The birth of Christ does not change you. It's the reason for which the birth took place that changes us. The life I should live, I can't. 
He did. You know what he says? I'll give you my righteous life and I will bear away your sin and I will fit you for heaven. Change you by grace and faith, by the power of the Spirit, forever. Jesus liberates. It's why Jesus could say at John 8, if the Son sets you free, you are free. How? Indeed. Well, I can tell you you're free. I can tell you stop doing that. You can say, okay, pastor, New Year's resolution, I'm going to stop doing that. Does that change you? No, it just gets you in that cycle of promise, failure, regret. Promise, failure, regret. You know what that is? That's slavery. But if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. That's only by the power of the Spirit of God. And I promise you this. Every person sitting in this room, because the Bible says you were created in the image of God, knows what it is to wrestle with sin, knows what it is to make promises to overcome it, knows what it is to fail and experience remorse and regret, but no true forgiveness. Because it's only through the blood of Christ that true forgiveness can be realized. And when it strikes your heart by the power of the Spirit, it changes you. It sets you free. That is why Jesus came. And the last thing he does is, he delivers us from the fear of death. I read verse 15 again. That he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Where does the fear of death come from? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. I love the idea of a free gift. I love the thought of a free gift. You know why? It's incredibly redundant. Okay, you could say the free gift, of, the free gift of God, or the sorry, the gift of God. But what is it? It's the free gift, meaning what? It's already paid for. The blood of Christ has purchased for us life. Jesus said, "I came that you might have life, and that you may have it what? More abundantly, which is what? It's life free from the consequence of sin. It's life free from the enslaving power of sin. Not to say that Christians are perfect." Okay, I don't want to say, I don't want to imply that. But it is to say that when the Spirit of God takes over in your life, He changes you. He makes new life, abundant life, possible. That's the power of the gospel. He comes to free us from the fear of death. How? By entering into death itself and coming back from death as a victor over it. My favorite scene in the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, is when Gandalf the Great is on the bridge and his little disciples, Frodo and Sam, want to fight this enormous dragon, this fiery dragon with swords. They pull out their swords and these just little guys are saying, okay, we're going to do it. And what does Gandalf say? Gandalf says to them, swords will not work here. And what happens? Gandalf enters into death itself to do what? To defeat it. And the, the most poignant point of that movie, when he dies, what happens? All of their hopes and dreams are dashed. And they're left hanging in a place where all they can do is fret. And as the movie goes on, they, just, they experience intermittent, deep seasons of sorrow and sadness. Why? They miss the one who changed their life. And then a little bit later in the movie, what happens? He comes back to life. And what do you find? You find this boldness and courage that comes into the life of Sam and Pharaoh. And everything changes. It doesn't mean that their lives are without struggle. But everything is changed. Folks, do you understand this? 
Christ came to free us from the fear of death. His coming back from the dead and taking his seat at the right hand of the Father is to say this, death is not the final victor. The purpose of his coming was to take on death by death and then to overcome it. And I love the glimmer of his victory in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Here's what you're thinking. If he can do that. And then he dies with one of the disciples. They're thrown down the stairs emotionally. They're experiencing deep sorrow and regret. And did we do the right thing? Blah, blah, blah. And then he raises from the dead. And they don't believe it. They don't buy it. And then later there's another witness that says, indeed, he has risen from the dead. And their hearts begin to fill with what? Courage. Jesus came to conquer death by death. What does that mean? It means he entered into it. He entered into it so that he could overcome it, so that he could defeat it and its power. And it's why we sing the song, Christ is risen from the dead. Listen to these words. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame. You know what the lie is? You cannot get help. You cannot break free. There is no deliverer for you. That's what Satan wants you to live thinking. And then you're defeated. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame. We fix our eyes upon the cross and run to him who showed great love and bled for us. Freely you bled for us. Beneath the weight of all our sin, you bowed to none but heaven's will. No scheme of men, no scoffer's crown, no burden great can hold you down. And then the song goes into the refrain. Following his death in strength, you reign forever, let your church proclaim. Christ is risen from the dead, conquering over death. By what? By entering into death itself. Come awake, come awake. Believe, receive, trust. Come and rise up from the grave. Oh, death, we say with Paul, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. He has conquered death by death. And the result of that is that our lives can truly be changed. Because a body he prepared for the son. And in that body, the son bore the consequence of our sin. This is the message of Christmas. And for everyone who will believe he will forgive you of your sin. He will liberate you from its consequence. He will give you power to live gloriously. And he will kill your fear of death by conquering death by death. That's the hope of biblical Christianity. This is the message that God became a man that separates biblical Christianity from every world religion. Most world religions encourage something like man becoming God. Pull yourself up. Help yourself. Biblical Christianity says God became a man to walk among us, to identify with us, to defeat sin for us, to defeat death for us, so that we can truly be free. That's the glory of this message. And if this morning you've come and you say, Pastor Tim, I don't know Jesus Christ personally, I, I want to encourage you this morning to consider the claims of Christ. I want to encourage you this morning to look at the cross. Look at the empty grave. Look at the victory of Christ. Lay hold of them by simple faith. Maybe this morning you just would cry out to God in your heart and say, God, I'm like Jason was. I don't believe any of this stuff. But if it's true, show me. 
show me. Open my heart. Give me the gift of faith and repentance so that I can embrace what Christ, according to the Bible, has done. Open my heart. This morning, if you're a Christian, you know Christ, but you say, Pastor Tim, I am caught in the trap of sin. Here's what I want to say to you. I want to say that Jesus Christ came so that you could be free. He came so that you could have life and have it abundantly, which is not a life of enslavement. It's a life of freedom. From the power of sin, free to enjoy the love of God, the joy of Christian fellowship in an unbroken sort of way. Jesus came that he might destroy the works of the devil and set you free. That's what this season is so gloriously and profoundly all about. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.